children occupied a precarious position in the ancient world. Whether they were loved or exploited often depended on how how useful they were perceived to be to the family. Examples of children being exploited or abandoned in the ancient world abounded. I'll give you a couple. In a papyrus letter dated June 17th, 1 BC, a husband uh, instructs his pregnant wife to let the child live if it was a male, but to cast it out and let it die if it was a female. Roman communities often had trash heaps beside homes where unwanted children were left. Anyone who wanted a child would walk by, pick a child up, and take it home, no questions asked. Often those who were taking the children were not kindly rescuers, as we might imagine, but they were exploiters who had raised the children to be slaves, prostitutes, or gladiators. We're also reminded of Pharaoh having the male Jewish children killed and Herod slaughtered the children after the birth of Jesus. And of course, in that time, nobody batted an eye at those things happening. The early church, though, inherited an ethic of seeing children and treating children as gifts from the Lord, from the Old Testament scripture and the example of Jesus. The difference between the church and non-Christians in the ancient world was noticeable, as Christians were known as people who refused to cast their children out. Disciples of Jesus treated children differently because Jesus treated children differently. So how did Jesus treat children? Open God's word to Mark 10, verse 13, where we're going to start today. And when you find out, I'm just going to stand on the reading of God's word. It should be page 770 in the Pew Bible, if you have one of those. Mark 10, 13. And they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, so that he would touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Allow the children to come to me. Do not forbid them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms, and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Title of the message this morning is Bring the Children to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we, we lift up the Duncans. We pray that you'd give them favor as they go to the villages. We pray that you'd give them Holy Spirit to speak the word, that the gospel be effective, uh, that they would begin to, to reach people and see entire villages transformed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guide us as we look at this passage today. Father, as we look at how Jesus treated children, let us see what we need to learn from it. While well, your word is living and active, so it speaks to us today just as surely as it did to those who initially read it. Give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. Uh, let the word just powerfully work in our hearts to convict us and change us and encourage us and strengthen us and, and just do what needs to be done. Father, none of us are everything we're meant to be. All of us fall short in one way or another, so let what happens in here today just work a little bit more in our lives to make us a little bit more like Jesus. Be glorified in all things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So you look at verse 13. They were bringing the children to Jesus that he would touch them. He would bless them. Parents bringing children to respected rabbis to be blessed was a, a Jewish custom that dated back to Jacob laying his hands on the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh and blessing them. The parents in, in verse 13, it's exactly what they're doing. They're bringing their children to Jesus so they can lay hands upon them and bless them in the name of Yahweh. I don't have time to get into 
all the, the blessing, but in the, in the Jewish culture uh, and in God's word, in fact, the sort of blessing that they would impact, it wasn't just a bless you and it had no meaning. Um, God said in the book of Numbers that if you blessed people in his name, that it invoked his name upon them and he would do that work for them. And so what they were wanting was for them to, to be blessed in the name of Yahweh and that to God to bless them in, in response to that prayer. And when this began to happen, uh, well, we'll stop there. That they brought this to them, and these these decide, these parents bring their children to Jesus. It, it is a lesson for us today, and this is the the key thought for the message. We must do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. We must do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. Bringing our children to Jesus is the greatest good we could ever do for them. Now, by our children, I don't just mean our individual children, our personal children, the children in our individual families. I'm talking also about the children of our church, the children even of our community. Bringing children to Jesus is one of the most important ministries of any local body of believers. It must be something we give our all to accomplish. But there are challenges in trying to bring children to Jesus. Look at again at verse 13. And when they were bringing their children to Jesus, that he would touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now the disciples saw the parents seeking to bring their children to Jesus and tried to stop it. Their reasoning, I'm sure, was they were trying to protect Jesus. Jesus was a busy man with lots of stuff to do. Everywhere Jesus went, crowds followed. And the crowds were made up of sick people who needed healing, demonized people who needed to be set free, sinners who needed to know that God loved them, curious people who wanted to see what all the fuss was about, religious leaders who just wanted to argue with Jesus. Every crowd that gathered around Jesus brought a multitude of needs and a multitude of issues and took just a lot of time for Jesus to deal with all the people that came to him. I'm sure in the disciples' mind, parents bringing their children to Jesus was just one more thing. Just one more thing for Jesus to have to deal with in his already crowded schedule. And while he did, they did have the, the Old Testament ethic of children are a blessing from the Lord. They still were just children. And Jesus, as whether he was, they understood him as the Messiah completely or just a great prophet, a great teacher. He surely had better things to do than to be bothered by the trivialities of children. But notice in verse 14, when Jesus saw them, he was indignant. Jesus was indignant at the disciples, at trying to keep the kids from him. One of my commentaries said the Greek word translated as indignant occurs only two times in the New Testament. Um, oh, it occurs only here in the New Testament as a combination of two words, much and to grieve. Jesus was much grieved, angry even, at the disciples trying to keep the children from him. I'll go out on a limb um, and make a wild assumption about everyone in here this morning. None of us would ever intentionally do what the disciples did. None of us would ever keep our kids or any kids from Jesus. We would not do anything like that intentionally. But a question I wondered as I studied the passage, is it possible 
We could do things unintentionally. Keep kids from Jesus. And if so, it's probably not a stretch to conclude Jesus is much grieved by this as well. Even when we do it unintentionally. As I studied on the passage, as I meditated on it and prayed about it, several ways we may unintentionally keep children from Jesus kept coming to my mind. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks, at least two weeks, this week and next week for sure, looking at some ways we might unintentionally keep kids from Jesus and what we need to do to be sure we don't do that. We're going to look at three today. The first one is showing exasperation with children at church. Showing exasperation with children at church could unintentionally keep children from Jesus. Typically, I pray a psalm every day as I do my daily prayer. A couple of weeks ago, I was praying in Psalm 147, which says God gathers the outcasts. And so I prayed for God to do that here. God would gather the outcasts of Gaiman into Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. That he would bring to us the people who aren't welcome in other churches. Or he would bring to us the people that maybe don't feel welcome in any church anywhere for whatever reason. And I wondered, as I was studying this, what if God answers this prayer? And he begins to bring into our church people who are very unlike us. And and not just individuals, but but families. People with children. And and what if these kids, these children come in, and and they've not been raised in church like, like our children have. And so, in in many ways, they don't know how to act in church. How would we respond to them maybe running in the sanctuary? Or or talking during service? Spilling a drink in the floor? How, How might we respond to them tearing a hymnal? Doing something that, that our kids who have been raised in church and know how to act would, would never do, but they haven't. If we become exasperated, if God were to bring people in like this, and we were to become exasperated with the children, let the children see and feel our exasperation. Let the parents see and feel our exasperation with their children. Do you think it's possible something like that could keep children unintentionally, but keep them from Jesus? So if it could, what must we do to bring children to Jesus rather than unintentionally keeping them from Jesus? Well, we must plan and pray to be able to minister to children. We must plan for the fact God's going to answer this prayer. He is going to bring in families into our church who have no church background with kids who don't know how to act in church. And then we must pray that when they come, we will be able to minister to them in the ways that are appropriate, that are Christ-like, that receive them. Right. So we must begin by asking Holy Spirit to shed God's love abroad in our hearts so that we can... Love the children we're trying to bring to Jesus. 
we must have patience. Because trying to bring children to Jesus can be trying. We must have grit. Because bringing children to Jesus takes time. Often, lots of time. We must be selfless. Because bringing children to Jesus requires sacrifice on our part. We must be willing to give of our ourselves, of our time, our energy, our money, of just everything. We must have a sacrificial mindset. We must have wisdom to know how to help children with whatever issues they may have. We must teach them God's word above all else. We must give them Jesus. We must do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. This includes planning and praying to be able to minister to children. Secondly, I feel pretty confident that hypocrisy in the home keeps children from Jesus. What if, what if when we're out in public, It's really important to us that we appear to be deeply devoted disciples of Jesus. But at home, we're, you know, more ourselves. And we're really, turns out, we're just as profane and we're just as worldly as any unbeliever anywhere. What if with this, we emphasize to our kids the importance of keeping up appearances? In public, not telling people what we're really like at home. Is it possible this sort of hypocrisy in the home could keep children from Jesus? Now, let me say something about hypocrisy. I've heard it said many times that in one way or another, we're all hypocrites because we all fail to live up to the values we profess to hold. I disagree with that statement. I don't think it's even remotely accurate. The reason I disagree with it isn't because I think we all hold up the values that we profess. I'm sure we all fall short in many ways. The reason I disagree with the statement is because a hypocrite isn't someone who really tries to hold up a value and ethic and then falls short. A hypocrite doesn't really try. A hypocrite doesn't really want to be a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus. They just want it to appear that they're a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus. They they don't try. Everything they do is, is a show. So people can see them and say, look at them. They're on point. They are really what Jesus would have them to be. But they really have no intention of being that in their heart. And when they're away from people who might know them, who they really are tends to come out. Right. So if you are someone who truly feels you're a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus and you struggle to live to the values that Jesus upholds in his word, but you fall short sometime. You're not a hypocrite. You're just a person struggling to get through, trying to do the best you can. That's okay. People understand. Nobody's perfect. We're trying. But if you really have no desire to be a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus, and all that really matters to you is that people think you are, that people see you as that, And in public, that is the persona you put on while at home you let your real self out. You probably are a hypocrite. And that sort of hypocrisy will for sure 
be a hindrance in bringing children to Jesus. In our culture right now, deconstructing the faith is a a big term. It's a buzzword. And all over, you find people who were raised in churches, sometimes usually in their 20s, and they are beginning to sort of deconstruct their faith, what they were taught as children. And usually, the deconstruction ends with an abandonment of the faith and an embracing of atheism. And one of the key factors that is common in deconstruction stories is mom and dad were one way in church, one way in public, something entirely different in the home. Over time, that communicates to our children communicates to them that that this thing with Jesus, it's really not that important. It's really not that big of a deal. What's important is the appearance. And so it undermines their faith. It it keeps them from Jesus. So what, what must we do to bring children to Jesus rather than unintentionally keeping them from Jesus? Well, we we must be men and women of integrity. Now, integrity isn't a synonym for perfection. The best way to understand integrity is just to understand it as being who you say you are. Integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy intentionally pretends to be something it's not. Again, hypocrisy is not trying to live for Jesus but falling short Hypocrisy is not really trying to live for Jesus, but wanting people to think you're living for Jesus. It's putting on a show so people will think you're one way when in truth you're something entirely different. Integrity, on the other hand, is being who you say you are. It's being the same in public as you are at private. It's being the same in church as you are at home. It's being the same in in Gaiman where people know you as you are when you're on vacation and, and no one knows you. It is just, this is is who I am. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. These are my flaws. These are my failures. It's all just right out here. That's living with integrity. Again, when it comes to to children, I, I think children are pretty sharp most of the time. I think they can tell the difference between trying and failing and hypocrisy. I, I don't think our attempts at being men and women of integrity, but falling short of the values that we believe from God's word. I don't believe that really keeps them from Jesus. I believe they see, gosh, mom and dad, pastor, people, of the church there. They struggle because guess what? Kids struggle, too. And when they see that we struggle. And we're honest and we own it. Gives them freedom to be honest and to own it, to lean into it, to lean into Jesus. And rather than that pushing them away from Jesus, I think it actually helps to draw them to Jesus. We must, we must be men and women of integrity. We must do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. And this includes being men and women of integrity. And then the last one this morning, and this one's really long, so don't be excited about the time. Teaching children moralistic, therapeutic deism instead of the gospel. Now, you've likely never heard moralistic, therapeutic deism. 
as a phrase. But it is what it sounds like. It is a teaching where the emphasis is on being moral. Be good. Right? Be a good neighbor. Be a good citizen. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Be good. That there is, it is therapeutic in its teaching. The, the goal of MTD is to make people feel good about themselves. You're enough. You're worthy. You deserve it. All of that to just make you feel, make people feel good about themselves. And it's deism. There is a God. But who this God is and what this God is like is largely undefined. In many ways, it's left up to the individual to decide who this God is and what this God is like. Now, there are five basic tenets to moralistic therapeutic deism. Again, a God exists undefined, but there is a God. This God wants people to be good. To be moral, to be nice. Be good citizens. This God, the central goal of this belief system is to be happy. To feel good about yourself. Because this God approves of whatever you want to do. So you should feel good about yourself. You should do what makes you happy. This God just wants that. And this God really doesn't make any demands on your life. He's really not involved in in, in the world affairs at all, except when this God is needed to intervene in a problem. Right? If if there's a problem in my life, I can pray to this God, bada bing, bada boom, he intervenes, fixes it for me, and then he goes back to his little corner and waits for me to, to summon him. Never makes demands, never tells me what I can or can't do. He's just there to make my life better. And then the final tenet of Moralistic therapeutic deism is good people go to heaven. This God wants you to be good. And if you're good, you get a reward. You go to heaven when you die. Now, while it is unlikely that any person anywhere would use the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism to describe their beliefs, a book released in 2005 revealed moralistic therapeutic deism to be, or the tenets, of moralistic therapeutic deism to be the most common religious belief among American teenagers. Now, before we say, gosh, kids these days, let's be real. Those kids were taught that somewhere. And this somewhere was most likely the home. And since we're being real, let's admit Moralistic therapeutic deism is almost certainly the most common belief system among the nominal American Bible Belt Christianity that's prevalent in our culture today. Every single person in this room right now knows multiple people who profess faith in Jesus. But if you were to probe their beliefs, they really believe moralistic therapeutic deism. It's even possible Some in here profess faith in Jesus. But if probed about your beliefs, deep down you really believe moralistic, therapeutic deism and not the gospel. 
Now, before you shut me down as being judgy or mean, think through these tenets again, but I want to ask questions and give answers. Is there a God? Sure. That's easy enough. Yeah, there is a God. What does God want from people? Well, He wants people to be good. He wants people to be nice, treat people fairly, be productive members of society. So, with these two questions, do you know people that if you were to ask those two questions, is there a God, they would say yes. And then what does God want? To be good, to be nice, be a productive member of society. That's what they they would say. That's what, what God wants most from people. Third question, what, what is the... The purpose of life, well, to be happy, to love yourself, to feel good about yourself, to enjoy life. Do you know people who would say, yes, there is a God and this God wants people to be nice? And they would say the purpose of life is just to be happy, just to feel good about yourself and just to enjoy life. Fourth question, what does God do in your life? Well, God helps me when I have a problem. That's it. Other than that, not much. Do you know people who would say, yes, there is a God? That this God wants me to be moral? That this God wants me to be happy, to enjoy my life? That all He does, the main thing He does in existence is to help me when I have problems. And then the, the last question. Who goes to heaven when they die? Good people do, obviously. So again, do you know people? They believe in God. They believe this God wants them to be moral. This God wants them to be happy. This God only comes to be to do anything in their life if they have a problem. And that good people, if they're good, like God wants them to be, they go to heaven when they die. Now, again, I'm certain every single one of us, we know people well enough that we can say, yes, I know people who would give those, maybe not those exact word answers, but that's kind of what they would believe. And again, I, I think it's possible. There are some in here that that's how you would answer these questions. Now, while moralistic therapeutic deism has some truthful elements in it. It is not the gospel. And moralistic therapeutic deism has no power to save. People who believe those things do not go to heaven when they die. Good people do not go to heaven when they die. That is not the gospel. The gospel message is not do better, try harder. The gospel says we aren't good. And no matter how hard we try, we'll never be good. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says our good deeds are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. The gospel calls our lack of goodness sin. And it says all have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standards. The gospel says our sins earn a wage and that wage is death and it's all a part of God's righteous judgment on sin. 
The gospel tells us good news of great joy for all people. Because a Savior, Christ the Lord, has come to save us from the wages of our sin and the righteous wrath of God. The gospel tells us this Savior, Jesus, came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The gospel tells us Jesus redeems us through his bloody death on a cruel cross. And that nothing but the bloody and cruel death of Jesus can save us from the wages of our sin and the wrath to come. The gospel tells us Jesus did this because God loves us. And he wants to save us from the wages of our sins and the wrath to come. And the gospel tells us that if God had not intervened in our lives, we would have remained children of wrath, separated from his grace, love and mercy. The gospel tells us we are saved when we repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us those who have been saved live, who have been saved by Jesus, live for Jesus. And the gospel tells us no one will be saved apart from Jesus. Do you see how different this is from moralistic therapeutic deism and the cultural Christianity so pervasive in our world today? Think how differently someone who believes the biblical gospel would answer those same questions from someone who believes moralistic therapeutic deism. Is there a God? Well, yeah, the God of the Bible, who's revealed himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What does God want? God wants all people everywhere to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of life? To live for the glory of the Jesus who has saved me. What does God do in your life? God saved me from the wages of my sin and the judgment to come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He daily works in my life to make me more like my Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, He will take me to be with my Lord Jesus Christ. Who goes to heaven? Those who repent of their sins and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how moralistic therapeutic deism, it keeps kids from Jesus? Because it gives them a false belief system. That has no power to save. It tells them they can essentially save themselves just by being good. And that is a damnable lie. And it dooms them to eternal damnation. So what must we do to bring our children to Jesus? Rather than unintentionally keep them from Jesus. Well, we must give children the gospel. Whatever else we teach our children and the children of our church. We must teach them the gospel. Hopefully we can teach them other things. We can be a help in many ways. But if we do not teach them the gospel, we have failed them. Now there are a lot of ways to teach the gospel, a lot of ways to share the gospel. But in seeking to give our children the gospel, to be faithful and clearly present the gospel to them, there are at least four elements that must be necessary or that they're necessary to be there. Three elements. One is we must say Jesus. It is not enough to teach our children about God. 
We must teach them about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. In our day, the word God is is almost a nebulous term with no specific meaning. But saying Jesus brings clarity to who exactly we're talking about. We must say Jesus. And, and, and also, not only is God a almost a nebulous term for our day, belief in God does not save. It is belief in Jesus that saves. Lots of people believe in God but reject Jesus. And God's word is clear. Those who have the Son have life, and those who do not have the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God abides upon them. All we teach our children is there is a God, believe in Him, we have fallen short of teaching them what saves them. We must teach them about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And if we aren't clear... In our explanation of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, we have not clearly taught the gospel. And we are falling short of what we need to teach them. We are failing them. Secondly, we must address sin. We cannot faithfully explain the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus without addressing sin. Listen, I know this is an unpopular teaching, and this is where the offense of the gospel can come in, but we must address sin. Why did Jesus die? I mean, if we're going to teach Jesus and his life and his death, why did he die? For sin. More importantly, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need to know and to believe in a man who died thousands of years ago because Jesus died for my sin? A part of explaining the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is explaining that that all have fallen short of the glory of God. People, even children, must understand they have sinned against God. They must understand that they are on their own justly condemned for their sin. Sin is not just some bad thing out there somebody did. Sin is not even just a mistake that we've made. Sin is rebellion against the rule and the reign of Almighty God. And if people, even children, do not understand this, they will never understand the significance of Jesus' death in their place on the cross. They'll never see their need for Jesus. Yes, we we have to give them the bad news. They've sinned. They've fallen short of God's standard. There is a judgment to come. But we don't leave it there. We then give them the good news. That Jesus came. And that He died on their behalf. He paid the penalty their sins demanded. If people, even children, do not understand Jesus died for their sin, they do not understand the gospel of Jesus and they cannot be saved at that point. If people, even children, do not 
believe Jesus died for their sin. They do not believe the gospel. We cannot leave out sin. And it's not teaching children about sin isn't bad. It isn't harsh. Children are smart. They 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 have a conscience given to them by God. They already know they do bad things. They already know they do things they're not supposed to do. Calling it sin and pointing them to Jesus who paid the penalty for it is a good thing to do. It shows them a way to alleviate the guilt through the cross of Christ to save them from that. To not talk about sin, to leave them in their guilt is cruelty. It is not kindness. If we do not address sin, we have not clearly presented the gospel. And we must call for a response. Urge them to respond to the gospel. There are two proper responses to the gospel given in God's word. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They must repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true for children as well. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Repentance starts by recognizing God is right. And we, even children, are wrong. God is right about sin. All have sinned. All sin is against Him. All sin is serious. We have sinned. Our sin makes us guilty in the courts of the Lord. Our sin prevents us from being good. We can't be good. It's not possible. Repentance then leads us to turn to God from our sin, seeking forgiveness based upon the the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Repentance is fueled by faith in Jesus. Again, repentance isn't saying, don't do that anymore. Okay, stop sinning. Stop lying, little Timmy. Don't do that anymore. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, what you've done was wrong. Now turn from that and turn to Jesus. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not saying, okay, I won't sin anymore. I won't lie anymore. It's saying, I've sinned against God. I need Jesus to forgive me. And we must teach them to believe Jesus. It's not a general belief. It's not enough to believe there's a God out there somewhere. That does not save. It's not even enough to believe that there was a Jesus who lived and died. What people, what children must believe is very narrow and very specific. It is belief in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Specifically, it is that his life, his death and his resurrection is the only hope they have for salvation. As we communicate the gospel to our kids, we must communicate to them only Jesus can save them. They're not good and they never will be. They're not good enough now and they never will be. They'll never turn over enough leaves. They'll never do enough good deeds. They must believe in Jesus. They must trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. And if we do not clearly communicate to our children that Jesus alone saves them. We have not communicated the gospel. 
we do not urge them to turn from their sins and place their hope completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have not helped them. We must, we must give our children the gospel. So many times, what we present to children is a watered down gospel. Right? We're, we'll say things like, now, Timmy, Jesus loves you and he wants you to go to heaven with him when he dies. Do you want to go to heaven with Jesus? Well, why don't you right now ask Jesus into your heart? And then you'll go to heaven with him when you die. Hey, what five, six, seven, eight-year-old doesn't want to go to be with Jesus when they die? Absolutely. That's wonderful. Well, we haven't really explained why they need Jesus. We haven't talked about they've sinned. We, we, we don't help them. Asking Jesus into their hearts so that can go to heaven to be with Jesus doesn't help them. We must... Be clear about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We must address their sin because they have sinned. And if they're not old enough to understand sin, they're not old enough to understand salvation anyway. And they need to know how the proper biblical response to responding to the truth, responding to the gospel. If we... At vacation Bible school or children's church or Sunday school, and we do something like, "Hey, do you do you want to go to be with Jesus when you die? Raise your hand and invite him into your heart." And we have every kid in Gaiman do that. We haven't helped any of them. They have to know about Jesus. They have to know what he did, why he did it. They have to know their part in that. And they listen. They're they're able to understand it. Sometimes. People are funny about this. Years ago, I was visiting with a family. And it was when the, it was years ago when the Passion of the Christ came out. It was still a new release at the time on the, at the movie theater. And they had children. And they were, I can't remember exactly how old they were. They were younger children. They weren't older teenagers. They were preteen or younger teenagers. So we were talking about the movie. And this couple wanted to go see it, but they weren't going to let their kids go see it. Because it was just too graphic to talk about the cross and... And how brutal all that was. It was just, it was just too much. And I mean, I thought, well, I mean, I could see. I mean, it was pretty graphic. I'd seen it at that point. And I, and I know, I realized the kids were. And I said, well, where, where are you kids? Oh, it's a movie right now. What are they watching? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. The cross was too much. But Saul 43 was fine. And often that's what happens, and, and, and even in, in church people. No, talking to kids about sin and addressing that, that's, that's too much. We, we just can't hurt their little hearts like that. Talk about the cross, and that was just too much. But they can go and watch all manner of graphically violent things on TV and at the movie theater. The, the problem, really the problem isn't that the kids can't handle it. The problem is we're not willing to give it to them. It's a problem with us, not with them. Listen, I'm not saying take our five-year-olds and show them the passion of the Christ. There is a way, an age-appropriate way to clearly explain the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. There is an age-appropriate way to tell them that they have sinned against God, but Jesus died for that sin. 
And if they turn from their sin and they believe in Jesus, they can be saved from that. There is a way to do that. And that's what we must do. If we have not done this, we have not helped them. We push them on a path of moralistic, therapeutic deism, and it damns them. It destroys them. It does not save them. We must do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. And this includes giving our children the gospel. You know, there are several possible ways we can respond this morning. Perhaps you've been exasperated with children in the church. And you've shown that. Perhaps you've lived with hypocrisy in your home. Perhaps you've implicitly or even explicitly taught kids moralistic, therapeutic deism. If this is the case, you you must repent of those things. You must repent of those things. Perhaps you want to be better able to minister to children. This is a time to seek Jesus to give you the grace and mercy you need to minister to children. Perhaps you have a great burden for the children of our church to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus. This is a time to pray for Jesus to save them and sanctify them. And really, perhaps you yourself have lived embracing a version of moralistic therapeutic deism. This is a time for you to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a time for you to repent and believe and be saved. So I ask everyone to stand. I'll pray and the altars will be open. You respond to God's word. Father, we love you. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Guide us today, O God, to hear and heed your word. Father, give us patience where we've been exasperated. Give us holiness where we've been hypocrites. Give us the gospel where we have embraced something far less. Make us a church that truly brings the children to Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. But the altars are open if you need to come.